Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Since 1976, Tom Nunn has been building, designing, and performing on original musical instruments and sound sculptures. Using commonly found materials like cardboard boxes, washers, springs, plastic combs, and the like, his instruments are both beautiful to behold and create unique and fascinating sound worlds. Based in, San, in the San Francisco Bay Area for more than 30 years, he has become an institution of that city's experimental and free improvisation music scene. He's also performed internationally as both a soloist and with other musicians. You can find a number of his recordings on Edgetone Records. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it, John. So I had on Mark Applebaum, composer Mark Applebaum, recently, and uh-huh. as we were chatting about some of his work with his uh, sound sculptures, Mark was also sort of my uh, doorway into getting into or getting interested in instrument design and building. Anyway, he said, you should really get in touch with Tom Nunn, and that he had actually been inspired by one of your instruments that I, I guess you had left behind from your days at UCSD. I think it was called The Bug. And so I guess right. you had left that there, and Mark uh, took that as an inspiration when he started making his instruments. Uh, so I'd be interested to talk about that, and we can even go further back. But I want to get into what, what compelled you towards this, uh, this activity of instrument design and building. And like I said, feel free to go take us back as far as you would like. Uh, but I'm interested to know the genesis of that creativity for you. Okay, sure. Uh, I was a graduate student at UCSD uh, 1974 through 77, late 77, and uh, then moved up to the Bay Area in 78. And while I was down there, uh, I was there as a composition major, but in the process, uh, I became interested in both instrument making and found objects and uh, improvised music. So I, uh, along with a guy named John Glazier, that's from San Diego, and people know him from uh, microtonality world, uh, he and I and a guy named Print Rogers, uh, with several other people, put, a, put together this thing called the ID Project, Improvisation Development. So what we would do is go out with found objects and junk and sticks and whatnot, pretty primitive, and go to, say, Balboa Park on a Sunday afternoon and sit there and improvise and then invite other people to improvise with us. It was very raw, very primitive, just basically, you know, something rhythmic. And uh, we got people interested in it from that point of view and in seeing that uh, it didn't take a sophisticated instrument to uh, have enough to work with to really have fun and enjoy the experience of making music. So... That was, to me, it was inspiring to see that happen. And so I went on with it and started making more and more instruments along the lines of what we had started with. Uh, basically, two two things. One was uh, a thing that uh, Print came up with, this Print Rogers, uh, called Spring. And he had a pine board and he put objects on it and a little contact mic and that was the beginning of for what for me became uh, electroacoustic percussion boards hmm. and i spent you know uh, 
most of my time on that was after I moved up here. Uh, I made the bug in 1986, and I went back down to UCSD and left it there for Jonathan, or it, it was in Bert Turetsky's office somehow, <laughs> I think. <laughs> anyway, I don't know how I got there, but uh, anyway, Mark started uh, to uh, write me and say, hey, you know, I like your thing, and could I do something with it? And I said, sure, go with it. And so, you know, well, okay. like Mark does, you know, he took the ball and ran <laughs> severely with it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so uh, I felt, uh, you know, that that was uh, quite an honor that somebody like that would be interested in this. So uh, that was part of it. Another part was uh, the space plates, which uh, we came up with. Uh, we had been using balloons, um, inflated toy balloons in little buckets. Another thing print came up with. Uh, and putting metal plates and strips on them because the balloon allows the metal to vibrate. And so the uh, then Richard Waters came down there and gave a presentation of his stuff in the water phone. And I think everybody knows that, but right, right. in case they don't, you know, it has bronze rods on a stainless steel flat plate or bowl with rods around the circumference. You have water inside, you bowl the rods, and it shifts the harmonics. Well, we took that idea and put those rods onto the plates and put the plates onto the balloons, and that became the space plate. Uh -huh. And the one I use is called a crustacean. Right, I've seen the video on, there's a video on YouTube of you uh, playing the crustacean, and uh, that's a pretty interesting looking instrument as well. I wonder how how much you, you sort of think about the, the visual aspect, or, you know, I'm just sort of curious about how you begin work on a new instrument. I mean, obviously, for some of them, it starts with the sound that you want to make, mm -hmm. um, or perhaps it might start with a particular set of objects that you found. You mentioned collecting found objects and things, but how do you get started on a new instrument or, or maybe the genesis of an instrument? How does it start for you? It usually starts from something that is pre-existing as an instrument or an idea, but uh, that comes from materials themselves. So when we were working with found objects, we had all kinds of found objects, and for a while I was playing terracotta flower pots, Oh, yeah. that we could buy in different pitches and have a whole set of those. But uh, after throwing my back out, I gave up that. And <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, just mostly the materials generate the ideas. And when you find a material makes an interesting sound, the next problem is to say, well, how do I put that into a context where I could use it in a mu musical way? Should I have several of these or is there just one and then I play it in different ways? that kind of thing. Then, you know, you just try stuff. Uh, I don't have a working method where I sit and think up of an instrument and then go out and 
plan and shop and do it. What I do is I have materials all around all the time. And once in a while, you know, I'll say, oh, that'll work. Like the tubes, like the Lukey tubes. I had those cardboard tubes sitting around for probably nearly a year. And, uh, you know, I had to clean up some stuff in the backyard, a strip of stainless steel I had back there, and I brought it in. This was something from way back down in San Diego. So I uh, cleaned it up, and I said, uh, I couldn't get 9-inch balloons anymore, so I had to get 11-inch balloons. And that was good because 11-inch balloons would hold that, you know, 9-inch wide strip fine. It would stay balanced on it. So then I tried, you know, a Super Bowl on it. And, yeah. Uh, then I had those tubes, and I said, well, maybe this will work. And, oh, yeah, it worked real good. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, how I, that's how I invent things. I don't invent anything. I just discover it. I run across it. And then refine whatever it is. So the tubes, you know, cut the ends out at an angle. It works better. Cut them different lengths, different wall thicknesses, and, and the density of the material uh, is important. And so, you know, these things I just discover in the process of uh, doing it. Well, you mentioned suspending things on balloons. I, the videos, if people want to go and find these videos on YouTube, there's several of them that I've discovered uh, and one of them shows you playing another one of your instruments called the sonoglyph. And that one uh, that one does have a very sort of visual aesthetic to it. I mean, it's almost like you, I think you even mentioned in the video that it sort of rep is sort of a modern art sort of uh, design element going on there. Uh, but I have a specific question about that one because I'm real curious about one of the sounds. Over on the right-hand side of this thing, you have these series of, uh, I'm not really sure what they are. They look like just little... Uh, uh, rods or something. Um, yeah, they're uh, three three sixteenths inch bronze brazing rod uh, that I have made little bridges of. I call them bridge rods now. Uh, and you know, so you take about three fourths of an inch and uh, from each end and bend it at a ninety degree angle and sharpen the points, drill a hole and hammer it into the board. Okay. And that's it. That's and it. Uh, it's here. This is I'm looking at it here. Just. That's it. So, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I yeah, can actually, yeah. uh, we can actually pick that up uh, pretty well, uh, over, even just here over the phone. I wonder if you could sort of talk us through that instrument since you're you're right there at it. Yeah, I have it up on the wall. It's a little hard to reach here, but just on the top right, it has what I uh, what I call uh, zing trees. Uh, they are uh, bronze brazing rod that are bent uh, from the heat of a torch into a curly uh, kind of shape that's, you know, just randomly curly or angular or something like that. They can be either as a ball, like a regular tree, or they can be flat on a plane. And these are flat on a plane, and they are, uh, they're, let's see, you know, maybe about six inches wide and then they they sit there at an angle i mean flat and parallel to the board about oh inch or inch and a half above the board so they sound like this here we go so that's what those are yeah yeah terrific and that uh david poirier invented that that idea huh. So uh, he was part of our scene for a while. And uh, then I have uh, threaded rods, uh, 
quarter-inch shredded rods, which I use a lot. That kind of thing. Uh, that's kind of harsh, but anyway, it isn't mounted right. Uh, but then there are nails. Uh, the nails are finishing nails of different sizes, uh, diameters, and lengths, and they sound like this. And then there's a spring. There's a comb. And then there's some strings. It's amazing. So Even, that, that. That's amazing. Even just over the phone, you can really get a sense of the the richness of those sounds. So uh, in this, cool. this is yeah. all. There was a, a friend of mine, Alan. The Crossman actually wrote a piece for the Sonoglyph and Chamber Orchestra, and we have a CD of that. Oh, really? Along okay. with another uh, set of pieces that a friend, Mike McGee, wrote, and that uh, that's on Edge Tone, and it's called it's called uh, Plastic Critters. <laughs> but okay. that's uh, like that instrument with a with a Chamber Orchestra and a composed piece. I have one qu more question about this instrument, uh, and th that is about the strings. So what kind of strings? Are those like piano strings? Are they guitar strings? Yeah, music, just music wire. Music wire. Okay. Yeah, just music wire. It's called, that's all. And I use zither tuning pins. Okay, zither tuning pins. Okay. Yeah. And one of these sets of strings is actually a string strung up, a long string strung to the middle of a short string. And it creates a uh, an interesting thing. This is it. it creates a chord. Yeah. Uh, Bart Hopkin came. Bart Hopkin came up with that idea. Oh wow! And so the uh, the tuning pins. Do you then all of this is sort of attached to a piece of plywood? Is that right? Like a half inch plywood yeah, or it's something? A, yeah, it's a piece of plywood. And you wouldn't think that plywood would be much because it's known as being cheap, you know. Yeah. But there's plywood and there's plywood, and uh, the most of the time I'm using heavy duty, uh, you know, plywood that's doesn't have a lot of holes inside, you know. Mm -hmm. But this one is a cheap piece of plywood, actually, and it still is good enough to hold the tension on the strings. Those, it's not great tension on the strings. It's not great tension, but enough to make it work. Yeah. So with those zither pins, do you have to have a special thing to that receives them, or do they just drill right into the wood? Oh, you drill a hole that's just slightly uh, smaller than the, the diameter of the zither pin, and okay. then you hammer it in partway and then start with a little tuning pin, start winding it in. Okay. Great. Yeah. I'm, I'm taking notes, Tom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. This is really wonderful. So... Um... One of the other instruments that also I'm real interested in, and, and because it, it seems so simple, but it just creates this just rich uh, sound world, is the Scatchbox. 
Yeah. Yeah, and, there, and, and I this, think the sketch box is the best thing I've ever come up with. <laughs> well, and it's it seems like it's they're they're pretty portable too, and they're made of cardboard, so they're pretty easy yep. to sort of move around. And so uh, maybe can you talk about that instrument a little bit? Uh, sure. What happens is that I had a big piece of cardboard box, a uh, big cardboard box that I found on the street, and uh, I put it inside the garage, and I said, I'm going to use that someday for something, just like happened with the tubes. And uh, I had been working with combs on the on the electroacoustic percussion boards, like, you know, like the Sonoglyph and the uh, Bug, and using combs as implements and scratching and scraping and skipping and everything. So then I started thinking... In about nineteen, about two thousand eight, I started thinking the combs in the sense are an instrument in themselves, and I noticed that they were shaped because they wore. So I sanded the combs down to where it's like a long football shape, you know, mm-hmm. shorter on the ends, right. and and rounded, and that created a sketching comb. And so uh, I came up with that idea, I guess, from a solo CD I did back in two thousand six was. Uh, um, called identity. I had two two pieces in there: a sketch rod and sketch mott, and it was with the combs on a, on the T rod ember rods and on the uh, mothics, which were kind of like you know smaller versions of the bug and all of that that I made a lot of around 2000. Anyway, so that's where the term came from, and I started saying sketch. Yeah. Well, then I said, what if I tried on different things? I would try it. On a car window, on a on a uh, wall inside the house, on a garage door, on a garbage can, on the hub of my car, the the you know driver, the uh, steering wheel, mm-hmm. uh, the dashboard. <laughs> so one day I sketched a uh, cardboard box, and it was full of National Geographic, so it was dead as a doornail. But it was just so resonant and so loud. I said, "Oh my God, what's going on?" Because it was uh, the most uh, present kind of sound. And so I realized that actually cardboard is, you know, a very flat drum. has all of that corrugation and air inside and so that's what makes it super super resonant not resonant in the sense of ringing resonance but resonant in the sense of efficient sound sound production you know, mm-hmm. so having a big flat face, of course, puts out the sound very easily acoustically on a big box or something. But I had used pickups on the uh, plywood instruments, so I said, "Let me see what they are on the box." So, oh my God, it's like four or five times more efficient. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, unbelievable. So um, I started making I got some boxes together and tried different boxes. And then about that time, the law office I worked for uh, got a bunch of new computers in. So I took these Dell computer boxes, two sizes, one for parts and one for the keyboard itself, smaller one. And I just got loads of those things and made up a whole bunch of them. (laughs) 
And so then started playing with those and got David Mahalik interested in it. He uh, has another group I had been playing in called Ghost in the House. And anyway, he plays slide steel guitar, but he uh, got so interested in sketch, we, he came up with the idea that the two of us would invite one at a time people to come over and improvise at his place and he had a little recording studio in his house and so we did that and over a period of four years we put out four cds and played with uh, 22 or 23 different musicians almost all trios that was really neat that just you know totally showed how the sketch box can work with any instruments any instruments at all so anyway those are also on Edgetone. Oh, oh, those are also Edgetone. Okay. And, and yeah, there's you say... one. Well, I hadn't got to that part yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, later on, I'll talk to you about Paul uh, Wynn Stanley. He's who I work with now a lot and uh, our duo is called Music for Hard Times. And uh, that's another project that comes along where he set up his recording in my basement here and so we get together weekly so we've had our 120th set i believe wow. <laughs> and so we put out a lot and the stuff i was going to suggest you might check out online is uh eden gully on Bandcamp. so anyway he plays electric bass but he plays it in such a way you can't tell the difference between that and a sketch box sometimes <laughs> it's just really amazing but I didn't describe the sketch box, did I? Not, not exactly. Uh, not exactly. So <laughs> maybe you could do that now. Well, it's just basically a box. Or later on, I made sketch plates, kind of a folding flat triangle that folds down flat, so it goes in an envelope. So uh, one side is uh, of that is just like three inches, two two and a half, three inches. Uh, well, it makes a light, like a little podium thing. Anyway, in both cases, I use uh, washers. I use combs, plastic, soft plastic combs, and I play with four different types of uh, plastic combs that are shaped differently for for different effects. I use bronze brazing rod, uh, eighth inch or three thirty seconds. I use self-adhesive sand, these things you put on steps to keep from slipping, Uh and they're self-adhesive, and so you pull off the back and they stick, and so I make strips and things of those. Uh, emery boards, you know, for your nails, mm-hmm. um, uh, little coffee stirrers, and because they're flat and wood, and they work good. Um, and I found some flat, very thin, flat wood that was like for blinds. I found that on the street, and I have a, just a load of that stuff. So I use <laughs> I use that too. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and they that's also uh, there's a video on YouTube or a, a few videos of you doing the uh, sketch boxes, uh, demonstrating them, and also just some performance videos that I found from various festivals and and whatnot. Uh, so that's that's yeah. Uh, down, when I did uh, in Baltimore, I did uh, the High Zero uh, Festival. There's three performances I did on that, including uh, a solo where I play the that sketch plate I just played there plus the uh, crustacean. 
So, so that brings up an, uh, another sort of interesting question, which is, you know, uh, where do you perform this music? And uh, I suppose there are festivals now and then that one could uh, go to and see this kind of music. And clearly there's a very active uh, sort of experimental free improvisation scene where you live there in San Francisco. Uh, where else, uh, where else is this kind of thing happening and how can people get involved with it or go to see this kind of music? It's, it's hard to say what kind of music this, this is, you know, I mean, they're experimental instruments, but they're not necessarily a genre of music. Right, right. I guess uh, I just mean, used in. yeah, I guess I just mean to see people playing their, you know, uh, free improvisation on invented instruments, this type of thing. For anybody anywhere, the the best solution is of, of as always is YouTube. And if you go to YouTube and you look up invented instruments, uh, you'll just come across a slew of people showing and demonstrating and performing with their invented instruments. Uh, it's not as fun as going live, where you can come up afterwards and look at them and right. try them. <laughs> But, you know, it's, that's the best access to, to that kind of thing. And then I think it would always also show uh, that, you know, these instruments, whatever they might be, can be used in a lot of different contexts, not just, you know, free improv, not just uh, experimental music. They can be used in legitimate musics of all kinds. In fact, I made some, and I put them out, a couple of uh, sketch plates that are have the exact same... Uh, format that I use here. Same layout of materials and everything. I made six of those uh, with the idea of giving them to people to try in the context of their own music, of a different style of music. So uh, three of them are out there and I haven't got a report back yet. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the, about your sort of, uh, environment there in San Francisco. I mean, clearly you're having the opportunity to perform and do some public performances and doing lots of recordings, clearly. Uh, what? Yeah. So what? who are some other folks that you work with out there? And uh, I, you mentioned a trio that you perform with, the RTD3 trio. Right, with, Don, with Ron and Doug. And Doug plays cello, and Ron is a vocalist and plays trombone tuba. And... Uh, I've played with them for so many years, and that's it's you know our we're so on the same page when we play that uh, it's just like breathing, no more effort than that. And uh, then I play with uh, Paul Win Stanley, like I said before, in Music for Hard Times, our duo, and uh, he works with bass, uh, uh, electric bass, and. Uh, Self-designed pedals, uh, not pedals, but, you know, little boxes to, mm-hmm. you know, like filters and whatnot. Right. You know. He can come in and he's such a good player, such a good improviser, really excellent. But I first met him as uh, the person who was doing the sound uh, at the uh, festival in uh, New Zealand that I went to, uh, AKO7, I think it was called, in Auckland. And uh, Phil Dadson, who's from there, uh, invited me to come there. And Bart came, and uh, and Walter Katundu came also. Uh, and uh, we all met about 10 or 12 instrument makers and played several concerts as part of that festival for a week. Hmm. And that and Paul was the one doing the uh, 
doing the sound for that. So when he moved to San Francisco, he gave me a call and said, hey, I'm here. Let's get together. And I said, sure. And we did. And all of a sudden, wow, this worked out great because he's so good to play with. And so, do you play regularly with this trio? Uh, how many, like, how many I performances? Play, uh, basically, we have we play once a week oh, uh, with okay. the trio, and once a week with Paul. Wow. Okay, great. But we don't. Of course, there are weeks we miss, right? For sure, this reason sure. or that. But that's the schedule. Oh, terrific. Um, yeah. I'm I'm sort of curious to go back a little bit, uh, not to backtrack too far, but. I'm sort of curious about like your your early training. I mean, did you start as a, a percussionist or what? You know, an instrumentalist <laughs> of some because it, I mean it's so uh, appealing. I think for percussionists for this kind of um, activity. But I wonder where you got your start and uh, you know were you an instrumentalist yeah. first and then discovered this or? I uh, I started playing piano when I was six and just took private lessons. And when I stopped taking lessons in high school, that's when I started getting really into it. <laughs> <laughs> and then I decided to try try my hand at writing. And so in high school, I was trying to compose some things, and it was pretty terrible, of course. But uh, anyway, I said, I'm going to major in composition. So I went to University of Texas and got a bachelor's degree in composition, and I went in the Air Force for four years because 68 to 72, Vietnam. And so then I uh, came back, and my wife and I then went to uh, SUNY Stony Brook. We both got a master's degree there. I was in composition. And so then there I discovered that our, on the board I saw that UCSD was a relatively young department that was trying to uh, get people – uh, composers and performers who were particularly interested in 20th century music to go there. So it was very experimental and very, you know, interesting. So I went there with the idea of getting a PhD, and I was there three years doing all the coursework for it, but then decided I really didn't want to teach in college. <laughs> so <laughs> what's the point? <laughs> but that's where I got a lot of information and experience about that led to you know, where I'm out now, and I really do appreciate that experience. Uh, I studied with Bob Erickson and Jean-Charles Francois and um, Ed Harkins a little bit, and it was really, it was really pretty amazing. Yeah. Pauline Oliveris was there. It was terrific. Wow, but terrific. Uh, again, I didn't want to have that as the lifestyle that I wanted. I thought I wanted it, but I didn't. So I decided to just moved to San Francisco with my wife and our four-month-old baby and not an idea how to make a living. Well, uh, but you, we did. Well, and that's one uh, of the things that uh, that I'm interested to talk about. I usually close the show with this sort of idea, uh, but about, oh, I don't know, a few months ago I discovered a book by this visual artist named Sharon Loudon, and it's called Living and Sustaining a Creative Life, and she 
it's it's for visual artists uh, mostly. Uh, the book itself is a collection of forty different essays from visual artists, and they're all sort of talking about how to live and sustain, you know, their version of a creative life and what they've done. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about that book is that it it puts in perspective that there is a variety of ways to be in the world as an artist. And yes. And that, that's, that's a good message to put out. Yeah, I thought so too. And that, that you know, a lot of people are very much uh, artists, but that, that's not how they make their, their living, that they're able to live and sustain their practice uh, in other ways that are by necessity or whatever, you know, they have to do that. And so I was just curious for you, like, what what's your take on this idea of living and sustaining a creative life? How do, how do you do it? Well, it was really part of the aesthetic of what I started with in the first place. The idea that, you know, rather than, uh, uh, you know, go through certain routes to get to a place, uh, maybe the thing to do is to go with the life, where it is now, what's around me, what I'm doing, how I'm surviving, and let that just be an integral part of whatever I'm expressing. Uh, So I never did have the idea after leaving UCSD that I wanted to make a living at music. In fact, I started to see the advantage of not. (laughs) You know, so I also had had a skill that I done typing since seventh grade and I'm really good at it. And so, and I'm good at English and I uh, got a job as a, uh, at Fort Mason foundation when I first moved up here and then went over to UCSD, UCSF uh, radiology department, administrative assistant there. And then I started my own business for, had it in the home word processing service for 15, 14 years. And then I got a real job <laughs> downtown at a law office that I've worked for now just coming up on 20 years. Wow. And, uh, and so we do medical malpractice defense, and uh, it's very interesting. So my skill level at this point is really, really high, and I have a decent, uh, you know, for that. I know medical and legal terminology and all of that. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's how I make a living. I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I'm going to have to retire next year because I turned 70. But, uh, I mean, I've been trying to get myself prepared for that moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of time during the day to have to come up with something. <laughs> so well, you've got everybody your... else is looking forward to it and say, what, you're crazy? <laughs> well, you've got your workshop. You've got all your instruments. I, I could imagine you could be very productive. In, in those uh, yeah in yeah years, well so. and I took seven years off there uh, back around 2000 to learn to play golf and <laughs> so I have that too but <laughs> anyway they're all limited that's for sure so but, what, yeah it will be it will be a nice opportunity to you know see see what I can come up with without any time restrictions at all so and I don't mean to pry too much but what what is it that you do at the at this law office you're sort of doing administrative work or no no word processor I type I type about 120 120 words a minute oh wow so I and I know that you know their forms and everything they do and they will uh, they defend insurance companies who defend doctors who are sued say medical malpractice okay and it's a really really interesting field uh and it's one of those things you know half the time uh yeah the doctor screwed up uh the other half of the time i'm sorry that's just what happened and there was nothing that anybody did wrong 
So it's it's that, you know, and uh, very interesting and nice, nice people to work with. I think there's a big difference probably between plaintiff lawyers and defense lawyers. We, defense lawyers <laughs> strike me as just more of they go to work and they come home. They put in a lot of hours, but, you know, it's what's the next case? So it's it's I'm very lucky, uh, and they're very supportive. And uh, oh, and I got another set of boxes that I uh, used to create the paint box series that I did because they got another new set of computers in. So twice they've given me lots of boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a good resource for your uh, instrument building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You always want to have a law office you can go to. Yeah. <laughs> for boxes. Okay. Good tip. Law offices for boxes. Got it. Writing yeah. that down too. Okay. Um, let's let's turn back to the uh, to the music for a moment, and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure you had mentioned uh, before we started the show that you might want to talk about free improvisation and uh, uh, the book that you've written on free improvisation. So, would you like to talk a little bit about the book or about your concept of free improvisation? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Well, the book is called uh, Wisdom of the Impulse, and you can order a copy of a hard copy of it from from uh, Rant at Edgestone Records, Uh, or you can search it online, and you'll eventually find it, and you can download it for free. But uh, it's uh, at the time, I think I wrote it between 1992 and 97. And so, uh, so I finished it in '98. So it looks at various uh, various aspects of free improvisation. It looks at uh, you know a purpose and approach, uh, the origins of the practice. I created a terminology to use to describe it. Then I have a chapter on called perspective, charting the influences and processes, and I use graphic charting in that. I have a chapter on critical listening. Chapter on current practice, free improv, improv and education, and then some appendices that have uh, like uh, one is a survey of improvisers where I sent people tapes and I asked them certain questions and record them on that cassette tape, send it back, and I'll transcribe it, which I did for about uh, 30 people. And so, you know, I have a uh, she didn't use all of that, of course, but I would use certain comments on certain aspects or questions that I ask. So that's an interesting thing, too. But at the same time, I think I've changed my mind a little bit in terms of the focus. That was a focus based on traditional idea of uh, analysis of music. So if somebody's looking at a free improvisation recording and they want to analyze it, well, here's ways to do that. Here's the, you know, a terminology to use and a concept to look at it, to map it. Uh, and to a certain extent, it works for uh, live listening, too. But I came up with seven types of transitions, and they just pretty much cover what can happen. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, useful in some ways. But since then, I thought, uh, you know, really what we're responding to when we're listening to any music we don't know, that we're not familiar with the style, uh, that it's very experimental, uh, we're listening for change. That's it. You know, how does change happen? You know, how does it, does it stay someplace for how long? How does it change? Change happens. How dynamic is it? On how many levels is it happening? How? And so all of that becomes the real issue for the listener. It's uh, not an issue, but I mean, it's a way of describing 
this, you know, rather than say, oh, it's a theme or it's a relationship or, you know, it's a repetition, something like that. It's just basically um, change, simply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you can, you know, what's to say? <laughs> yeah. Some out of words. Yeah. Well, it was really That's the last word. <laughs> yeah, it, it was interesting. Yesterday, I did a, a another podcast with this composer Steve Wanna, who mm-hmm. is also interested in uh, free improvisation. For him, <clears throat> he he likes to create the framework and the structure. Um, I don't know that he's so interested in free improvisation, just as a as a sort of uh, abstract, esoteric kind of idea. But that, and he said, you know, the best improvisers are usually working with some sort of structure. And so I wonder, like, in your experience of doing this for so many years, are there are there structures and things that you come back to, um, or or do, are you sort of uh, think that that no. free? No, okay. So maybe talk a little bit about that idea. Sort well, of, there's two ways to look at it, basically, from the out in and from the in out. Right. Yeah. If you're creating a structure, you're looking from the out in. You already start with the out. Now you're going to create the in. So if you're doing it the other way, all you think about really is the inside. The outside takes care of itself. It really takes care of itself because then it becomes an organic uh, result of your consciousness about what you're doing. And we have in our musical nature the ability to do incredible things without our conscious mind realizing we're doing it even and you realize that when you listen back to a recording and say what (laughs) that composition in terms of structuring the larger aspect of the piece. 
I just worked with a dancer uh, and did a thing Thursday night in which I did that, you know. We had uh, 30 minutes to do it, me solo and her solo, and so we had to have something rather than just uh, do nothing because I was afraid, you know, again, we haven't done that where it's totally free. We've always worked with some kind of structure or idea. Uh, But these are very loose, and like I say, it's useful in that large piece sense but in the sense of, uh, uh, say, our trio, Ron and Doug and I, we never talk about stuff. We talk about everything in the world but music. And I mean, not but music, but I mean, but what we're doing specifically. We don't mm-hmm. have to talk about that. Right. We do that, and it happens. And, and, that's and just listening, just listening and communicating through the music yeah. rather than having to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's not an intellectual thing. It's a sensitivity thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always felt that improvisation was really important. You know, I work with students uh, in my job, which is teaching percussion. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I work with students all the time. And, and um, you know, occasionally we do get to do some improvisation and uh, or I'll, I'll sort of make them do it, you know. And there's this sort uh-huh. of ingrained fear of making mistakes that, that I think a lot of, uh, you know, classically trained musicians have this sort of fear of, you know, they're afraid to, to do something wrong, to play a wrong note or to do something. But but in, in improvisation, there really isn't, it's it's really not a question of doing something wrong. It's a question of being present and being expressive. And and that's one of the things that maybe uh, that, that people can learn from improvisation, or I've, or I've always felt that I've learned from it, yeah. is how to be expressive well, on your instrument uh, you know, without mm-hmm. having the the constructions or the 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 constrictions of the printed page. Yeah, well, I, traditional uh, musicians. I'm married to one. My wife plays French horn and classical, and plays an orchestra and that that kind of thing. And uh, their approach is they get confidence from having practiced the part, from having known the music, knowing the music really well, mm-hmm. and then playing it. So their confidence is is based on an idea they have of the result. The confidence that you have in free improvisation is that you have a sensitivity and an ability to listen and respond appropriately, have a sense of pacing, have a sense of balance, have a sense of pitch, have a sense of this and that, timbre, change, all of it. And that is where your confidence comes from, because you have a sensitivity. You don't have to worry about the outcome. It'll take care of itself, but not for a classical musician. And you can see why. Right, right. Now, that's a that's a very well-articulated point. Absolutely. Yeah, you're right on with that. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, so it's, they're different worlds, but they're all aiming to the same point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the end, the best, the best composed music sounds like it, it just so, so freely flowing that it had to be almost improvised. And the best improvisation is so tight that it, they don't understand how it can't have been composed. Yeah, yeah, I've always so, felt, yeah, I've always felt that same yeah. way that, uh, you know, I've seen... And when you get to that point, no matter what way you got there, you know, you're there. Uh-huh. That's great. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, just master. I've seen master musicians playing, you know, Bach, for instance, a cello suite or something, and it seems uh-huh. like they're, you know, inventing it at the moment. You know, uh, so I, I, I definitely that resonates. Feeling, it? Yeah, definitely resonates with me what what you're saying. So, well, um, Tom, we're we're reaching the end of our uh, time here together, and. Uh, 
<laughs> I wonder if you have any final closing thoughts about, uh, we've already sort of talked about the living and sustaining a creative life. So do you have any advice uh, or maybe resources that you might point people to who are interested in either instrument design and building or free improvisation? Is there anything else, uh, resources or advice that you might have for people who are finding the show and, and uh, going down that path? Of course, it depends on where they're starting from and what their orientation is. A visual artist, uh, somebody that you know works in a kitchen, is it a uh, somebody that's a composition student? Depending on all those things, you know, they'd be different, interested in different things. And uh, so, I would say just this: that the materials are what have always been my inspiration. You find good materials that are interesting sounding and you let your mind work with that and you'll come up with some way to use them as an instrument. And then it's a natural thing since nobody's written for that instrument before to improvise with it. And so the two go hand in hand. And uh, that would be my only uh, suggestion is uh, open up to thinking about materials and start with that. Okay. Great advice. Thank you, Tom. Sure. Thanks for calling. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music, You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.